Hey everyone, Eric Watson here, and this is the recorded audio of a DM-only live stream in which I prepare for our next live session and chat with fans twice a week at my Rogue Watson YouTube channel. Please note that these streams are full of DM spoilers. This was not originally intended for an audio-only format, but has been converted to a podcast for your convenience. The channel and by extension this podcast are supported by Patreon. If you'd like to support my work, you can do so at patreon.com slash roguewatson. Enjoy the show. Freelance writer, player of games, writer, board, recorder of videos, and tabletop role-playing aficionado. Welcome to the very final edition of my bi-weekly behind-the-scenes DMLA livestream, Crafting Icewind Dale, in which I will now no longer build, right and prepare for our next session because there is no next session to prepare for. Instead, this is going to be a little bit different. I am going to... Uh, Kind of just prepare for epilogue and recap, which mainly just means putting all the maps up there. But mainly I want to turn the floor over to all of you who are watching this live. And we can kind of do an AMA. And I assume people know what that means. I believe it's from Reddit. It means ask me anything. Uh, assuming, of course, we're talking about D&D and specifically this campaign. So this is a chance for uh, you all to uh, ask me any questions about... Um, whatever you can think of really but you know changes i made or things i didn't include or things that worked things that didn't work um you know it, it probably specific areas or or things would work better rather than vague like what was your favorite you know element of the campaign like that's fun but i could sit here and well and maybe that'll just be what i talk about for like an hour i don't know <laughs> uh but this is going to be slightly different than the epilogue and recap because it's you just have me right so you can just talk to me i will uh read what all of you are saying and then on uh, Friday, we'll have the whole crew here, and then we can discuss everything with all of them, and uh, I'll have uh, things that I want to talk to them about, so it won't be as much of me interacting directly with you all, the viewers. It'll be me direct uh, interacting with the players, and uh, we'll be doing like fun trivia questions and some giveaways and you know big uh, rap party things, so that'll be really fun to look forward to. If you'd like to support the channel, please check out patreon.com slash roguewatson for our campaign we use Roll20.net, and for streaming, I use Open Broadcaster software with Streamlabs. I can't believe it's it's finished here. Two years, and I did mention the fact uh, at some point, maybe halfway through this campaign, that I was thinking it was going to be about as long as Tomb ended up being, and that was true. It ended up being about that long. Now, whether that's a case because I expanded the campaign, although really, I feel like I didn't even expand it that much. It's just that there's a lot of content in the book, I think. I mean, it's... I I didn't use a lot of content, right? Like, I didn't use a lot of Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. I, I really feel like that was kind of a pick and choose, which is a great way to give me material, give give the DM more material than uh, they need, and then they can pick and choose whatever material that they want to use. So uh, I used you know, a lot of stuff from the book, and then only, like, maybe one location not from the book, which is one I had to come up with, and then I, I did modify locations quite a bit, especially in the back half of the campaign, mainly as a tool to uh, increase their level and challenge a little bit more. You did get home just in time, Morgan. Hello, hello. Sylvan, CG4279. By the way, I appreciate your kind words, Sylvan, as always. Uh, that's good company to be in, for sure. Ranger Sierra 11, I really enjoyed this campaign. Great job by all, despite all manner of adversity in real life and in-game. I mean, it's a wonder that anybody can play D&D with the same group. I'm extremely privileged and blessed to have great friends um, that have been friends for ever and ever, decades. And and the fact that the internet exists, <laughs> and Roll20 exists, and video chat exists. You know, thank goodness we're in the era where the technology can allow us to get together and be able to play uh, a tabletop RPG online and be able to, uh, you know, still hang out with each other uh, to an extent. But yeah, it's a wonder with 
the older you get into adulting, just the more tricky it is. And we've all seen the memes of, you know, in terms of people not being able to schedule and get together. And certainly that happens in our games as well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I, I am always very thankful uh, to not have to worry about not having a group because I know a lot of folks, they have the willing and the means and the time and everything, but they just can't get a good group going. Hello, Tyla, Stan. This is actually the only game I enjoy listening to. My goodness. Certainly there's some other good folks out there. Uh, Sylvan mentioned some good folks. Uh, I don't know if you can scroll up when you join. Dungeon Dudes, High Rollers, and Critical Role. I'm sure you've heard of at least some of those. <laughs> ACT, looking forward to seeing you in the game on Thursday, the Patreon DD game. San asks, what magic item or items do you regret giving out or would you like to have done differently? Magic items. Well, you know, I think... I think I did a pretty decent job on magic items. I feel like that's something we've definitely learned over the years and years of playing D&D. In terms of what magic items feel um because it's a tricky balance right you obviously don't want to give somebody and i feel like that's definitely a new dm problem you give somebody an item that's so powerful that it it throws the balance of the game away on the flip side i also don't like giving out a magic item where it's the equivalent of um what is the meme of was it gravity fall or something where the dude's like oh this is worthless you know he sees the note uh, you don't want to give somebody an item that immediately gets forgotten about forever and ever and ever that sucks and it depends on the player too some players i've noticed uh tend to be a lot more creative or interested in having a lot of different magic items whereas other players they you just give them like the one or two you know items that they can remember to use and they will absolutely use those you know as much as they can but they don't want like a big smorgasbord of items um i don't think i have any regrets on items specifically i'm trying to think especially in terms of overpowered items i don't think i have any um yeah i'm looking at the i'm looking at the list of magic item attunements on my list i guess i should be looking at the actual magic items uh, in terms of the ones that made the final cut so those would presumably be the most powerful ones and i think i did a good job of players a lot of times had some some real choices to make in terms of oh man do i want to de-attune to this and attune to that um, I guess maybe, um, I would regret not giving, I, I, okay, I have, I have a good answer to that. Thimbleweed, I gave a magic bow to via the Aviatrice's treasure hoard, which is kind of a cool moment where they had to kind of pick and choose like, oh, can we grab some of this loot before the dragon shows up? And it was this magic bow that could deal cold damage and then did this AOE blast. Reese is such a, uh, kind uh, conservative player that he was so worried, I think, about this. Hey, if you hit a nat 20, you, you make this, you basically cast Ice Storm in a, you know, on the target that I think he barely used it. And then, especially once we started getting late game, we, we, we faced a lot of cold enemies, which makes sense. Then he just stopped using it altogether. So that kind of was a bit of a bummer. I mean, and the thing is, like, you know, at some point, somebody's going to get cold magic items, right? You're in fucking Icewind Dale. On the other hand, it's weird because you're in Icewind Dale and do you really want to use cold items against a bunch of cold monsters? I get that. But that was kind of a consequence that he ended up using literally his basic short bow by the end of the game. Now, on the plus side, he did have shardle and arrows. We had magic arrows and a and a, a pretty lengthy supply. That reminds me of another good example. The whole shardle and crafting system. Okay, Stan, there's your answer. The ability to craft the iron, was it the iron balls of Blaru or something? The ones that, the, the binding, the shardle and bands of binding. And what's interesting is he kind of stopped using them after a while, but it, there was a point in the game where they were very powerful because I think I meant to have him be like, it sh what should have been a finite use or something, is the fact that you can craft that item and then um, not, and just have multiple ones, I guess. That ended up being a little bit imbalancing that I didn't realize at the time. And it was on the flip side where I had a whole bunch of, like a laundry list of items he could craft, and the only ones he ended up being interested in, this is Raymond talking about, uh, Edmund, uh, was the those Shardlin bands of binding and the Shardlin arrows. The arrows I was fine with. That was cool for the reason that it, it kind of rebalanced uh, Thimbleweed into having magic item access. The iron bands, however, ended up being a little bit uh, unbalanced, which is this one, the Shardlin bands of binding. And I probably should have made it where they were finite. Like you make, because you could craft them. So I probably should have made a craft. It's a one-time use. That would have been an easy way to rebalance that. So there's there's your answer for that. 
him tonight, but did not commit to today's layer. Our home rhyme was a player lasted 13 months playing two hours every other week. Did not do anywhere as much as you did. Yeah, that's about half as much content, I think. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of people, I mean, you can, and you know, if you if you follow the leveling scale pretty closely, then you will vastly outlevel the content. Like they give you way more than you need for chapter one and two to where you'll definitely be whatever level you need to be to go into like Aurel's Abode and Sunblight and all the different uh, like actual uh, big story moment areas. So it's very odd the way that they give you all this content, but they really say like, okay, well, these 10 adventure sites are for levels like one through three. Like, wait, what? Like, that's way too much. You kind of have to pick and choose, I guess. Lazy DM asks, I would first like to ask, what type of game do you prefer to run? Ones that are easy to run as written or ones you need to add a great deal to? Um, That's an interesting question. I would say I prefer to run games that... They're in Roll20 already, so I have to do a lot of the map and token work for starters. I would like... What I look for is, like, are the maps, are the dungeons well-designed? Are they interesting? Is the main story, you know, easy to follow and interesting enough to keep up with? You know, give me the broad stroke stuff and don't get me bogged down in proper nouns, right? Your 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 lore building, your world building, and all that stuff. Um, because what I'll... A lot of times what I'll do is uh, do the do what the Game of Thrones TV show did to a Song of Ice and Fire, which is Song of Ice and Fire is a thousand characters, and the Game of Thrones TV show smartly condensed all those characters in just a couple different figures. And, you know, if I can work with what you've got, then I, I can get excited about it. I have not found a D&D campaign yet that I could probably just take off and run with, although Tomb of Annihilation was pretty close However, the caveat is it's a very, very simple story. I mean, very simple story in terms of the main plot, which which did allow me to add in more uh, character-specific quests. Notice how I didn't really get to add a whole lot of character-specific quests here because I had to kind of rewrite the entire main plot. I think it worked out pretty well, but that was the consequence is um, a lot of my creative writing energy had to go into that versus having to do like the, for example, like the character-specific quest chains that we had in Tomb. I didn't do those here. So I mean, probably I don't I don't really know the answer to that. I guess this this one I probably had to work harder than any other campaign that I've done. I thought the result was pretty satisfying, but I will say that the next campaign I would like to have a little bit more out of the box, <laughs> uh, and also probably not last two years. I did I did mention uh, I think during my Monday updates, at least to patrons, that I said I would uh, whatever I pick next, I don't want it to go uh, two years long. Wouldn't say you added to the campaign, you made story mo coherent. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I mentioned that I didn't really add a lot of like completely new content, but I changed a lot of the existing content. The only new content I added was that Shardle and Dig side because I needed to have some kind of main quest step between uh, chapter four and five there's a huge horrible gap where literally this character Valin just shows up either at the beginning or end of this chapter and just tells you all of this information it's just it's horrible writing and it's really bad to where i was like all right i gotta fix all of this because this is the dumbest to have this character just show up and tell you here's the last third of the quest which has nothing to do with the next third of the quest and I already know all the information, so let's just. But we got to go and get Oral's thing out of the out of her thing, and then maybe we'll go fight her. It's it was, so I had to yeah re mess with all of that, and you know, and I've and I've taken a lot of stuff from things that I've read too. Like uh, I think I read somewhere, maybe on a Reddit thread, that like, hey, you know, have Valen appear in the dungeons in Sunblight, and I was like, that's a fucking great idea. Like that's more organic. That's a great way of finding an NPC that instantly. Um, uh, yeah, what am I trying to say? The the NPC likes the players more because of that, and maybe they'll they'll be maybe become more fond of the NPC uh, because they rescued them. Like that's just awesome. So shit like that, um, I've I, I changed a lot too. But yeah, in terms of me having to add straight up content, I mean, I probably added more content or just about the same to Tomb of Annihilation. 
um, or to Prince of the Apocalypse. Like, there was other shit that I had in there. I, the Shardland Dig site was probably the first large-sized dungeon that I actually... Oh, and the Goodmead Brewery, too. I actually, actually built that as well. So I added two dungeons to this campaign, I think, because Goodmead was originally just the Verbeeg's Lair, and I actually made that kind of a two-step dungeon. I did forget about that area. Question, Demnix. Do you think, by the way, I'm sorry if I sound nasally, I'm literally, like, fighting a head cold right now, which is such bullshit, given that everything we have going on, we're doing the move right now, like, it's just, I'm down in Dayquil like crazy. Uh, it's horrible, so hopefully it don't sound too bad. I think it's, I can feel it, like, coming now. I had, like, I had the sore throat earlier today, and then I'm starting to get congested. I'm like, God damn it. Terrible, terrible timing. Uh, question. Do you think from this campaign run you'd you'll ditch or adjust any of your house rules? That's a good question. Well, let me ask all of you. Do you how do you feel like our house rules are doing these days? <laughs> um, you know, we and what's funny is we just had a DM roundtable about um, like lingering injuries and and death penalties and all that, which you will see uh, this week soon. Um, in terms of stuff sticking out, I think the only one that really changed this campaign was Spell Scrolls, and I think it ended up working fine. Uh, it was it was a desire to allow Spell Scrolls to use almost more like, uh, I don't know, probably video games use them inspiration, where they were, they were more like one-time use um, uh, spells that anybody could use. So it didn't really follow Spell Scroll rules. It followed like, this is like a, like a magic item with a finite amount of things. But I did add a little bit of a skill check there and mainly a chance to use the wild magic search table because that table is just fun as hell. Um, it didn't end up coming up too often though. I don't think we actually used a whole lot of Spell Scrolls in this campaign. Uh, massive damage, I think still works fine. You know, it, it feels like it adds to a crit, which by the way, I think one D&D is, is trying to do something extra with uh, critical uh, hits. And I, I really like this, that it adds every time on a critical, and it's for um, both sides, although I'm sure I have forgotten about doing this, uh, especially on my side. I think I've forgotten about that a lot whenever I crit. Um, but the times we f we remember, it's nice to have that. And then ling lingering injuries. Um, we, this is an interesting talk about way in the DM roundtable, where because I'm a little more lenient on player death, and I'm maybe not as challenging as a lot of DMs, I do add this bit, so it's actually more challenging to drop down to zero hit points, and you're saddled with one of these... Uh, nastier debuffs for a while, though the players can usually uh, end up curing them pretty quickly. Um, other than that, I don't think we have too many... You know, oh, the cinematic advantage thing, like, never came up. That was something I read about that thought about was a good idea for characters that, you know, want to do something different. I feel like Edmund's usually the one that tries doing something different, though, and here he just had a lot of spells at his disposal versus just being a melee fighter. Um, and it's probably, as a DM, I, something I forgot about, too, so it's just... And then we had rules for fastball special that we thought they'd be hucking uh, Frey around, but actually never really came up that often, I guess, because barbarians just have good movement in general. So it's funny how some stuff gets remembered a lot and uh, other stuff is forgotten about. So I don't, uh, but yeah, I'm interested to hear what you all think about the house rules at this point. Extremely creative. The best item you gave them, the ring of spell storing, and they tossed it aside. Ha! <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It, it, it's, it seems like such a good item, right? It gives, gives you extra spell slots. Um, and yeah, they just gave it to their NPC. And that is funny too. Like you think as a DM, like, oh, this item is so good. And the player is sitting there like, eh, whatever. So you kind of have to throw things at them and just see what sticks at some point. The nice thing is once you've been playing with the same group of players for a while, even regardless of the kind of player character they are, you can get a good feeling for the kind of items that they would utilize and appreciate. And then you can mold that onto their character. And obviously, a lot of times I will still draw from the good old Dungeon Master's Guide, which one of its best resources is magic items. But I've I've gotten now to where I, I can try to, you know, figure out what the players specifically are going to enjoy and be really impressed with having. Fragonator. You changed the level of the adventure. Was it lightning? I plan on running Lost Mind of Pendover in the Essentials Kit as a primer while seeding in plots to start Prince of the Apocalypse. Okay. Shortly after starting that, Rhyme of the Promised Man will start, and then we'll finish that. We're going back to the second Sword Coast to finish. Is this all one campaign? Level 20, hopefully. Wow, that's going to be a lot of work. Uh, hats off to you. I, I love to see it, though. That's that's something that I'm uh, I'm very impressed by, but I am, like, in any video game I play, I'm, like, alt-itis 
where I will I like to play a lot of different characters versus having one character and only playing that character all the time. I mean, obviously it's a big like you know campaign thing that I'll you know where it's going to be take too long to play the character, but you know MMOs or stuff like the Diablos or things like I will play so many different kinds of characters. I just love utilizing different characters and abilities versus playing all one big campaign. And yet I just did that with this two year campaign, and all my player characters play those characters for so long. Hey, Brandon, James, after adding and personalizing Tomb and Rhyme, do you think that's something you'll continue to do, or do you think you'll stick more to an Adventures content in the future? Yeah, I think I did answer that um, earlier. I And and one thing I haven't technically done yet is, is just do my own thing. Um, that's mainly a time constraint, I feel like, at this point, because, and especially because we play on a VTT, because we use Roll20, in order for me to design my own stuff, which is what I did do when we first played Shadowrun, is a lot of work. Like half the creative work I have to do, at least, is just putting together maps and tokens and everything. So it's really prohibitive to try and come up with these big, long, you know, campaigns that require all these different things. Whereas if I start with this campaign, start with the bones, then I can have fun adding in all the little bits and pieces in between and connected it all and have these cool, like, you know, bespoke side quests and all that. So it's, you know, it's a combination. I think I prefer to start with the starter thing. You know, the same thing when I played like Roller Coaster Tycoon back in the day. Because uh, you could play, you know, either the scenarios, which gave you like a starter park and then let you build from there, or you could just get a blank slate. And I would look at that blank slate and be like, uh, you know, I'd play around a little bit, but I'd go right to the scenarios, give me the starter thing, and then I could add on to that and build my own stuff. So I feel like I need the I need the start first. <laughs> Knowing you're moving soon, I'm guessing you pushed the end a bit. What would you have liked to add if you had a few more games to play? Honestly, I don't think I did. I the time just worked out well with the move. Um, sorry, I keep feeling I have to sneeze. This freaking head goal is the worst. Um, I, I I think the only thing I maybe would have added was more to Ethrin, but gosh, we were already in there for what ten or eleven sessions. Like, as we missed out on maybe like one or two of the expanded towers that I would have liked, and then I mean we only really went to like half of Ethrin. I think well maybe. Maybe we did like 65% or something, but there was a good amount of Aetherin left. So th that was probably where the best content still lie, and yet we got a ton done there to where even the, I think the players, they felt like they were like, all right, we've done a lot here. Now it took us like 10 or 11 sessions. So pacing-wise, I think it was very appropriate uh, to end it where we did. But in terms of leaving content on the floor, and then I didn't feel like I had to add anything more to uh, any of the other areas I didn't already do. I think that was the only thing. I would be very curious to know what all of you are very sad that we didn't add, if, especially if you're familiar with the uh, campaign. Uh, give me a second. I've got to get a tissue. I'm going to freaking snot myself. The way I'm dressed all snazzy because it was my uh, oldest uh, fifth grade graduation we got to go to, and she got like eight awards, so that was definitely a proud dad moment. Ugh. Sorry, I'm so... Oh, this is coming. This freaking head cold. Oh my gosh, it sucks. I truly enjoy the level up sessions you have with your group, so thankful that you leveled them up so high. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> we talked about that too in that one crafting where it's like, I don't know if I need to, if I want to level them up yet. And then it felt weird not to have it do the whole, like, let's go through our level ups together as a group. Because I do like that. And that's something that I don't do in our patron game. That may, maybe I should. Maybe it would be nice to go through the level up thing. It, it's a little different because we have, you know, kind of a rotating uh, players, but uh, it's it is fun to be able to share uh, what people can do, and it's less of a surprise for me unless you're Raymond and you're like, oh, I'm gonna surprise you. <laughs> but yeah, that was a lot of level ups, and that part was fun. That was something I came out of Tomb specifically wanting to do. Is like, hey, I'm gonna improve the pacing of this next game. You know, even though it ended up taking us, notice it took us a full two years, now we went to 15 instead of level 11, and that part at least made me feel better. So I did feel like even though it was a two-year-long campaign, it was paced much, much better, and I think we averaged maybe like six sessions a level or something, which again, our sessions are about two and a half hours long or so, so I think it worked out pretty well, but uh, it was also increasingly challenging, I will say, to balance D&D &D the higher level you go. I think, and I would definitely agree with the consensus that like levels five through 10 is probably peak D&D, &D, which kind of sucks if you think about it. Like you, it just gets harder to go from there. But like, you know, obviously one through five is very, very popular, one through four, whatever. 
very popular and in some great levels. But then five through 10, you're really coming in your own. You're becoming stronger, but also the world is still very dangerous. There's just a lot of good content out there. There's a great mix match of abilities. And then once you start getting into like tier three, like, I don't know if player hit points just start getting crazy or abilities start compounding and magic items and the DM, like it's harder to keep up and also make things still fun because a lot of the way you can keep up is by doing all the nasty bullshit sh- stuff that players can do, like crowd controlling them and dropping them zero hit points and all that stuff that I don't think is also very fun for a more, you know, dare I say, casual gaming experience. So it, it, that part was a big challenge, I will say, is running D&D for, and, and Chris did it too, and so he had more experience with it. But this was uh, many more sessions of uh, going all the way till level 15. And, you know, it was a challenge, and I definitely did not succeed in all of those situations. I still have the CRIT thing, that's my bad. The little Steam bot thing. With Rochelle's situation, was there a discussion to have her character leave or was remaining in the campaign hoping to return an incentive for her? Um, we we kind of treated it like um, uh, like when uh, somebody in the, in the what is it, a reserve military, this is for the U.S. at least, um, if you get uh, called to serve, then I believe, I don't know what the rule or laws are, but I believe they like have to keep your spot available. Um, I, I'm probably messing up what I'm trying to explain, but we, we definitely, we definitely was like, you know, we're not going to like, you know, kick you out or something for this or replace you. Um, it, it did put more of a, uh, stress or something. I mean, and obviously it was a horrible situation to be in and something that just came out of completely left field. Um, and thank goodness it ended up working out. Thank goodness she's a little bit of a hypochondriac doctor, as she mentioned the fact that um, you know she's she's got the the curse of what is it called the burden of knowledge that a lot of people in, in the health industry have, where they know like shit and they know um, more shit than you and I know. And uh, she managed to diagnose it early because I feel like, gosh, more than probably half the medical problems to the human race or existence is because we just figured out too late so thankfully she got it taken care of uh and hopefully it'll continue to be taken care of um i will say that's something that i if you if you remember i tried to put my foot down early in the campaign before it started i i had i tried to do a house rule that said if you are not here then your player character does not get played and I got a lot of pushback for that. So much so that I backpedaled and did not do that rule. And I will say throughout this campaign later on, and especially when that happened, it was like, ah, oh, I this this would have been a, a nicer situation for especially if a person's out for an extended period of time. And I don't know why it bugs me so much, but it does bug me when um, another player character is just puppeted by other players. It just feels weird. And it feels, it, it really feels weird. I'm typing out the recap and I'm trying to like mention the player character, but it, but it's not really the player, you know, doing that character. It just, it feels very awkward. And I, I'm, I guess I'm curious how if other players have done that. And, and from what I, what I can tell, we're the weird ones that do it that way. Most groups, if you're not there, your player character's not there. And, and, and like our Patreon D&D game, which is now my other big experience with with DMing D&D, um, is kind of different because your player char- if you're not there, your player character is not there, but we also rotate players in and out. So we always, so far, I've always had a full five uh, roster. So it, it was an awkward situation uh, in terms of the player counts. And I understand that they're, um, on their point of view, they were like, well, we're worried about the game balance. And I'm like, and my response would be, well, I'm always worried about game balance. <laughs> like that's one of my biggest concerns going into every single encounter that we do. And you all that watch these crafting streams know that, that that's always a big concern of mine. I think the biggest problem is that a lot of times I don't get very much of a heads up if some players can't be there. And that becomes a lot more difficult because obviously I can prepare for things ahead of time if I'm given a forewarning like you know a day or two in advance but oftentimes I am told the day of or evening or even right before we were getting together that like hey so and so can't make it and that would cause a lot of stress for me because now I'm like oh shit now that player character is not going to be there now I have to worry about the game balance so it's a weird I, I don't know what the 
best solution is there we've had a dm roundtable about this topic already and and obviously there is no good solution you're just trying to figure out what the best one is i do know that it bugs the crap out of me to have um another uh, player character be puppeted by other players but i don't know necessarily what the best solution to that is so i would love to turn it over to all of you and see what that is and i realize the way i'm trying to catch up on the questions i'm going to be reading new questions and then getting answers to my other earlier questions so that's going to be tricky is there a point in the campaign you were like, all right, this has been fun, but I'm ready to wrap it up. That came before your big move. Um, in terms of like, oh, we got to, like, I'm ready for this campaign to end. Um, I think, Brandon, the best answer I can give to that is that I was very excited about Ethrin. Um, So I always knew that the best content was at the end, which helped a lot, I think. I So I feel like probably the time I felt most about about that was in the Caves of Hunger, especially when we had that Frey turn into a Wendigo fight that lasted like two full sessions. After that, in fact, yeah, the Caves of Hunger in general, that whole chapter, I was definitely like, all right, I'm ready to wrap this up. Like there was so much content we skipped in that cave, so much. And yet we still spent like six sessions in there or something. Like we went through it. I mean, I'll show you. I don't know why I'm just staring at the map. By the way, tell me if, if you guys want to see different stuff. I'm just kind of chatting, but... <laughs> I can certainly be showing you different things on here. Uh, is it literally Cave of Hunger? Like, we skipped so much. In fact, if you look on there, I already did this. I did the yellow is the path my players took through this dungeon because it's a gigantic dungeon. I'm at 30% zoomed out. And it, you can't, you still can't see it all. So we really only did, oh, in fact, I need to finish it. I can do that right now. We really only did like half of this dungeon. We we didn't really fuck around with the Remoraz boss fight. I guess that was a bummer that we couldn't do more of that, although we did see some of it. And then we never did like the vampire showdown. Like we kind of skipped a lot of the content in here because that Vredigo fight ended, uh, just ended up being so long. And I just, maybe it was badly balanced on my point, I, my part. I don't know. Um, but I guess that was probably part of the like regret thing is, uh, that we didn't get to necessarily experience more of it, but I was definitely like, all right, I'm, you know, this area is worn out, it's welcome. Um, I <laughs> we need to get to the ether because I think that's going to be the, the more uh, fun and interesting location. So that's probably the best answer is uh, this dungeon in general. I'm trying to... Uh, Trying to redraw this map, and I'll catch back up on the chat in a second. Yellow, because I did explore these side rooms. Yeah, it was a bummer we didn't get to do the uh, extended multi uh, Remoraz fight. But, I mean, we still lost, and like I said, it still took like six or seven sessions, so that tells me, like, all right, we've spent a good amount of time in here. Sorry, I'm getting more nasally as I talk. Ugh, this snot is just so nasty. Blame my toddler thing was snotty as crap four days ago there we go i think that finishes yeah that fredigo fight was insane uh did you change the massive damage rolls thinking of the living blade crit of 80 would have had a dc of 40 it probably would have did we even do the massive damage on that thing i don't like i said i think we've forgotten that house rule like half the time at least the poor forgotten house rule if there was some way I could macro it into like D&D to where every time you crit it like reminds me or something, that would be handy. But I feel like we've just forgotten about it. So no, it would... Oh, let me look it up. Target must make a, a con 73. The DC is 10 or half the total damage, whichever is greater. Yeah. And bosses are immune to massive damage. Do I even... Re did I even remember that? I don't know. <laughs> I just... I don't... The problem is... You know, are you asking about house rules or are you asking if I remember my own house rules? Because that's the, probably the more pertinent question here. Potion drinking is a free action. Is OP if the monsters don't do it too? Uh, you know, that, that would probably be a good one to revisit, actually. Because <laughs> the fact that I don't... That's probably from... That's not even a code... That's not even a codified house rule. Codified? Codified? We just started doing that, I think, in our very first campaign, thinking like, all right, well, yeah, you can drink a potion, of course. And then I think somebody has to, has to cite this format, but I believe there's a rogue subclass that gives you the ability to drink 
like a potion as a free action or something. So to where I'm like, oh, <laughs> and yeah, that would obviously that would have greatly changed the dynamics of that other fight if it took you an action to drink a potion. Like holy shit, the players would have TPK'd that fight. Like how how often were they drinking potions left and right? That would have been crazy. So that's actually a good one, and we may need to revisit that or talk about that. The main rule we have right now is if you drink one potion, it's a free action. What we could do, I could uh, use like a Pathfinder system where it's like, hey, if you want to drink a potion as a free action, that's fine, but you, but that's your move action, or that's the, but now you can't move kind of a thing. So maybe you could play around with that where it's like, all right, I'll still let you drink a potion, but that's like instead of moving. I'd have to look closer at Pathfinder's rules. Uh, but they, there was some kind of action economy they did like that, which gave the players a little more freedom of choice. So that could be something I could look at. Like an artificer was perfect. Then we didn't use that magic bow. Surprised them we didn't use the magic bow. All right, yeah, James, I, I talked about that earlier in that very first question. I don't know if you're, this is remaining to that. Is that OC adventure coming along? I mean, I haven't done shit lately because it's all been moving stuff. So <laughs> it's still in my uh, Google Docs, I promise you. I really like most of your house rules, though. I'm not a huge fan of the crit hit effects, but that's just me. I'll make it work as most house rules do. Okay, and that's what we've just been talking about a lot. The massive damage. I think it's cool to add something to crits because a lot of times, and we've seen this before, where critical hits um, are disappointing. Um, unless you happen to be a monster that has multiple damage dice coming in, especially for players. You know, you might, oh, I get an extra D8 or something. Unless you're a half-orc or a barbarian uh, who get extra abilities. But I do like the fact that crits should come with some kind of extra effect. And this just allows it to happen on everybody, although you also get a con save uh, to deal with it. But I think the problem is I just remember it, uh, or I, we forget about it too much. And the ones I forget about are probably on my end. I forget because obviously the players are going to help me remember that. Um, I forget about doing it to my uh, players a lot of times, even though I do not mean to. Dragon's Lair is the only interesting thing I can think of. Will you give us a house tour after the move? Probably not. <laughs> but you can at least see my uh, the new office, which I'm really excited about. Does it get everything done? Dragon's Lair is the only other thing I can think of. Citrus goes to high levels. Higher levels, isn't it more about showcasing skills rather than challenging combat? Uh, it depends on the group. It depends on what you're playing D&D for. I think we um, still really like playing combat. <laughs> and I think it's increasingly very difficult to provide interesting combat. And the problem also is that everybody, everything takes longer, right? The higher level you go, everything's got more abilities, um, just more effects and higher hit points. So it's just going to take longer, which is very challenging for somebody trying to keep up with pacing and uh, creating a D&D experience that's between like two and two and a half hours. I'm talking about multi-class. <laughs> yeah, no multi-classes. You know, I, I love multi-classing. I, I don't know why. All my character concepts involve multi-classes. Um, my two main player characters I've played so far in our streamed campaigns are both multi-class characters. Both warlock dips, I think, as well. The fast hands. Okay, thank you. Potions. I let my players use an action to drink a potion and get max potential healing from it, or they can drink it as a bonus action and roll the hit points. That's interesting. Yeah, bonus action seems a little better. It definitely, you know, a lot of players, once they get to those mid-levels, all have very good bonus actions they can do, so that becomes, you know, a trickier choice they have to make. Feeding one to somebody else is still an action, and you must roll. I feel like that's supposed to be a thing for us as well, but I bet the players have gotten away with it before. And, and I'll probably relent because if they're having to feed somebody else a potion, it means shit has gone very, is, is very badly going for the players. <laughs> so I'm probably like, yeah, of course you can do that. Whereas I'll be like, it should be your action. Crit steal max damage and roll the critical effect table. Max normal damage. Yeah, that would probably be better. So like you don't actually roll dice, it's just... Get to roll this much as much damage as you possibly can do with the extra dice. Everyone to start as rogue. Okay. Thirty second countdown on a player's turn. Yeah, I mean it's it, it gets bad sometimes where players take a long time. Um, it, it just you know it can be analysis paralysis. You've got a lot of options. Um, maybe you're just not quite. Oh, I got to sneeze again. 
you have to like refamiliarize yourself with everything you can do. And again, this, this problem compounds as you get higher level and there's just more things available. So maybe, and maybe this is a consequence of my group and us being more, you know, like I hate to say casual again, but that's kind of, you know, a more casual group experience. Uh, so maybe we just need to stick to the, you know, one through 11 campaigns, and then that would be less of an issue. And I mean, especially this campaign went to 15, and the last one we played, Worth the Lost Plane, was 13 to 20. So we've kind of had our fill lately of these high-level uh, campaign experiences, I guess, high-level play. Max plus roll for crits, and that's one leave you open to an opportunity for adjacent enemies. Ooh, an extra nat one thing, huh? That's actually not a bad one, though. So in that one, instead of having a fumble table where you immediately have something bad happen, instead, the enemy, it triggers an attack of opportunity if there is an enemy there. I feel like that um, uh, picks on melees too much, though. Because, uh, you know, if a warlock or somebody's in the back... Sorry, I'm having to wipe my nose. Um, and they're rolling in that one, then that's they're probably not having anybody in their face. It's going to get a reaction attack. Some folks need encouragement. <laughs> yeah. I, again, if I could plug that into a macro, that'd be pretty. That'd be pretty slick. Be like, uh, in fact, that'd be a hilariously uh, passive aggressive thing uh, to plug into roll twenty. Is if it somehow like elapsed to where if somebody took like longer than a minute, it would be like it has been one minute since you started your turn or something like that. I wonder if there's like a macro that could that could track time because that would be the only thing I would implement. It would be. Uh, something that, like a timer that would keep track of it and just passively aggressively update the player <laughs> on those few times where it's like, all right, you're taking too long. And you're taking too long, which means you're going to instantly just basic attack is what you're going to do. Were you happy with the secrets, the way secrets played out? Yeah, that's a good question. So secrets was a, a new thing in this campaign, kind of a unique thing in this campaign that um, I think I did really like it. This will be obviously a very good question and topic to bring up uh, during Friday's uh, rat party. I'm gonna put the secrets. Secrets. Where did I put them? Player secrets. So this was something, uh, even from the very beginning of the game, that I was like, I had to change and I, I think improve upon, because a lot of the secrets in the book. I mean, I liked the idea of the secrets. But a lot of them were just some minor role-playing flavor notes, and others were like very big deals, like your host to a, you know, a slod tadpole in your gut or something. I was like, oh, that's big. Whereas one of them just like, you're Dritz's biggest fan. Okay, <laughs> you know, some of the, so they're just there was uh they were not all equitable with each other. So I came up with some new ones and modified some existing ones. I think existing ones were Cannibal and Host and um, whatever the uh, Auralite one. Is this one? Yeah, the Favored. Oh, and the Abducted. That one is from the book. I think it's from the book. From It Ascendant, yeah. Um, I think the rest of them I may have had to... Oh, and the Doppelganger. I think that was from a book too. Man, that would have been fucking crazy if somebody had done that one. That'll be, you know, that'll be a fun thing to show the players too, all the secrets they didn't choose. So the way I did it, if you recall, is I came, I had 10 of these and I gave each person two. So nobody got to see what the other ones were. And then everybody got to choose one of those two secrets. And then roll from there. And each of these secrets, I gave them an actual ability or some kind of passive benefit or something that would happen to where their secret essentially reminded them of their secret throughout the entire campaign and it had an actual effect on gameplay which is something i wish player backgrounds in D&D did instead of it being this really minor like oh you can forge documents or some bullshit that nobody remembers to do because they're a charlatan or something um but this this way it gives you some kind of ability you know all of them did something uh and some of mine have just been like advantage on something and disadvantage on something else and you know they weren't all like abilities um, and, it, you know, similar to magic items, I think some players really use them to the most. Um, and other players, it was kind of forgotten about. Um, in fact, we can go over really quick. Um, the Abducted, I was really looking forward to that one because I had an actual quest lined up for that with uh, with the um, Beautiful Mine. Uh, first, le having the uh, Psy Crystal, and that would lead to It Ascendant. And that was an awesome little quest chain. So I was glad somebody chose that one. 
Uh, Rochelle didn't end up actually using the Mind Tickle more than like maybe once or twice, but it also has a really nasty um, drawback. It gives you an extra ability, but you have to make the save and then you can end up um, stunning yourself as a result of that. So I think it would have been very powerful had she remembered she had this tool at hand, but I think it was one of those that was kind of forgotten about. Um, so this one ended up being the story ended up mattering more than the ability uh, for sure. Cannibal, very famously Frey, did not use for a long time until it was like 15 sessions in or something where she finally started figuring out how she could best do this without literally being a ghoul and like going over and feasting on people. She's like, I'm just going to take like an individual finger. And that became kind of a fun, like almost meme thing, which I rolled with. Um, it had a very, you know, complex ability that she enjoyed and the Wendigo thing. I think that ended up going really, really well and gave her uh, character a lot of flavor even though we didn't actually end up using that in the story much because it wasn't something she necessarily wanted to explore or expand upon in an RP standpoint. So this one, the mechanic ended up being a lot more than the story and her story ended up being more about like, to me, it was like the Goliath and the axe thing and and all of that. Or, and, and all those, Frost Giant. Like anytime she got to deal with like some kind of tough um, NPC or, she, you know, she got to shine, so... Uh, the evolved thimbleweed was the uh, had the creature just hating inside of them. At the time, I didn't know what creature I wanted to use, other than I was pretty sure I was not going to use a slot. And I wasn't sure exactly when I was going to do it when I started this campaign. But like the abducted, I was like, all right, this is just a great story tool that you've handed the player. I don't necessarily have a good you know whole quest line to go with this, but turns out I did. I just didn't know at the time where I ended up turning Rebel's End into... Um, the LD426, LV426, I believe, from Aliens. That was a lot of fun. And then, of course, transforming into a Thrycreen, I had totally not planned uh, until we got closer to that point. And then that was a lot of fun as well. Um, oops, that's a host. Uh, the Hunted was probably the biggest dud in terms of the player barely realizing what they had and the DM not really working with it at all. This was the one Raymond chose, uh, Edmund. Cunning action, hardly ever used that, but also just an artificer doesn't really need to, you know, dash and disengage and all that as a bonus action very much. And I was supposed to tie this up where I was going to have like assassin show up and really play into that, but I just never could come up with a good reasoning behind it. And instead, I just kind of tied that into a very nebulously to like Valravan and Avarice's story to where he's almost like a hangers-on. But his story became more about him like being obsessed with Shardolin and stuff. So again, that, that stuff, you know, you have plans and then it just kind of the story evolves differently. Uh, so this one ended up being more of a dud. And then the spy um, did end up coming to a head, but very early in the campaign with the Care Deneval and Avarice thing. And then we really didn't see Avarice for the longest time until the very end of the game. So probably could have done more with that there, you know, maybe checked in with him more, but we just had so much content and so much going on. It just never really came up very much. So, um, but I did like how it played out in that Care Deneval scene where he like admitted to working with Avarice and all the players like Frey tackled him and all that. I thought that was a, a pretty fun moment. So that was a good question though. I, I did like going through all the secrets, but we could even go over probably in the epilogue and recap all the secrets they didn't take and maybe if that would have changed things. Especially Thimbleweed and Frey, yeah. They they definitely had the most the only one I, I would say that's bummed about it, though I understand why we didn't, was that somebody's actually like a doppelganger in disguise, because that is so crazy. That really changes like your whole character concept. Question you keep certain stats. Is that something you'll share next session with the group? I don't know what you're referring to, Demnix. Certain stats. Secret was Dritz fan, never found a way to get in the game. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's just lame. <laughs> it's just lame. I like the secret thing. A good question will be whether or not I want to do secrets in future campaigns. I don't know if I would do them exactly like this, because this one is kind of a darker, creepier campaign. I do kind of like the idea of having a specific background that has mechanical trait things that like have, and notice how all of them had positives and negatives, although... Some of the negatives, uh, both Edmund and Thimbleweed's quote-unquote negatives, were both up to the DM to implement. They weren't, like, in written in where you had, like, you know, hard-coded disadvantage on something. Like, Ball Robin had, like, disadvantage on initiative roles, for example. Whereas Edmund was like, you're supposed to be hunted by people. And Thimbleweed is like, you've got a growing, like, you know, creature inside that's going to pop out at some point. Uh, phrase was, you could, uh, you know, morph into a Wendigo. So some of those are more hard-coded and others were just up to me to try to implement. For a great deal of DM work, which feeds back to my question about running as a doing do more stuff. Thimbleweed's played out was awesome. Yeah. I liked it a lot. That one worked really well. It meshed really well with the player. Uh, Thimbleweed is, or Reese is always on board with me doing some kind of body horror stuff to him. I think I gave him an adamantin skeleton in uh, 
Tomb, uh, Tomb of Annihilation. So that was fun. So I think, in a way, the player secrets kind of took the place of the player quest arcs or their backgrounds in a lot of ways. I don't think... Um, other than... Well, I was trying to get maybe Edmund, but... just I guess his hunted was because he found out more about Shardland, maybe. But, it, you know, so some of theirs evolved as they went along, but that was that kind of was the stand-in for their player quest chains were these secrets. But it, I like the fact that they all had little um, mechanical things with them. I don't know if I would do secrets for another campaign because I feel like the secret thing was kind of specifically done for this one because it was supposed to be more of a horror theme. But maybe the idea of having a specific quest um, quest chain background thing that gave you a trait system and the balance I would try to do would be, well, you get a positive and then there's also a negative to go with that. An attention pool for party decision making. DM keeps adding dice during stalling, and if something didn't interrupt, the more dangerous it was. I believe that might be from the Dungeon Master's Guide. Uh, mad talking about because that does that sounds familiar. I feel like I've read about this, or maybe it's another game rule that I've read about. Even though Edmund had cutting action, I yeah, I think. It might have been one of those we literally we all forgot about. I mean, it's <laughs> it can be kind of, especially for players that have a lot of tools, like they start getting a lot of magic items and a lot of um, spells and things versus characters that don't have as many and then they'll be more reliant on the few things they do have. Like secrets better than old bonds and ideal system. Yeah, beca because to me, it's because they had these extra, like tr these actual mechanical traits that players got to use. I think that was pretty interesting. I was just a fan of Secret. He's loved in 10 Downs. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny, yeah. I don't remember what the original secrets were. Um, oh, there they are. Yeah, Dritz fan. Uh, escaped Prisoner is the it ascendant one. Littlest Yeti. You were raised by Yeti. That one's kind of weird. I guess you could... That one would also have burned out quite early in game, right? It would in the Mountain Climb quest. Could have uh, used that. Oh, yeah. Spy is one. Okay. So maybe I didn't actually invent that many. I might have just taken the ones that were in here already. And reincarnation is one. That's one I modified. You're actually like returned. Cannibal. Orc stone is bizarre. Three times per day you can just summon an orc war chief. Like what the fuck? How was that a? That's not a background. That's a fucking magic item you get to start with. That, like where the fuck the balance is that? Flame. You just have a lover that shows up at some point. Resistant to cold damage, also not balanced at all. I did include one where you are um, favored. Yeah, you're an Aural Light. You have resistance to cold damage, but vulnerability to fire damage. And you're literally like afraid of fire. You kind of have like the Yeti ability. Still probably a good trade-off in this campaign though, for sure. But very interesting story-wise and something we actually did go into in the last like third of the campaign, we did have uh, Fran ended up working for the Frostmane at least for a little bit. Uh, so we could have had somebody work there from the very beginning. Um, I don't remember which ones the players chose and which ones they rejected. That would have been an interesting question too. I have to go back to like that first session zero or something. Well, Ryan, the lover's secret to Dryad. That's true. That's funny. <laughs> that was a funny one. What a funny story came up with that. Oh, I see what you're saying, Demnix. Um, so sorry, what was your question? About the stats? I'm trying to remember. The Discord bot, or sorry, the Discord poll system to where you can vote and have the screen on there, and I will have multiple choice, so players have a, or you all have a chance to guess with that, and, and the players do it to an extent. Um, and that's how we'll do all the various trivia, because yes, I did keep stats. Now, that being said, I am human, I am very fallible, and I've done my best to keep stats as they come, but it's me updating them in the middle of doing everything else. Uh, so I'm trying to tell you there's a margin of error, I'm sure. Hopefully it's not much more than the usual margin of error, which is like, you know, 2% or something. But I, I, it should be pretty close to our total stats. And yes, I did keep track of a lot of stats. I've got um, our rests, our... Uh, critical hits, number of times players went down, number of times people got inspiration. So those are the kind of trivia questions I'll be asking uh, throughout the 
stream on Friday. Those will be a lot of giveaways. And also ask just like, what are people's favorite moments? What are their favorite chapters? Um, maybe like favorite NPCs, those kind of fun things. So there'll be more, those will be like more fun open-ended questions versus actual like number of questions which have right and wrong answers. Francine, everybody loves Francine. Yeah, plus minus a lot. <laughs> there, there might be a slight margin of error there. Some of them were pretty surprising and other ones were not pretty surprising. I also tried writing down what all of uh, the most memorable moments were. We probably agree on some and maybe you all uh, think some are more memorable than I do and vice versa. So, And, I, and I'd love to ask that of the players as well in terms of uh, overall, you know, what uh, locations were their favorite, what, you know, situations, because that's, that's where you're going to get your best freaking feedback as a DM. As I get more and more nasally as it goes on. Um, when you can ask after a campaign, you know, get together and just hash everything out and, you know, make sure to accept all the criticisms and comments as well. And that's just how you grow. And especially if you're sticking with that same group, you know, you can learn what they like and what they don't like and what individual players enjoyed. And you're not gonna be able to please everybody all the time, but you certainly want to please um, different people, different times to where everybody gets the same amount of pleasing. <laughs> and I think we did that pretty well in this campaign. You can even see on this map the stuff that's still uh, grayed out. Change Caves of Hunger and Etherin to be on the map. Stuff that we didn't use, which I don't regret any not using any of this stuff. And I don't regret using stuff that I shouldn't have. I think we... I think we did all the right stuff um, and we had plenty of content for everything. Um, there were only a few opportunities for the players to make really major choices. Uh, but you, I think it's important to create at least the illusion of choice, which is something from like video game design where, you know, you make them feel like they're making choices, but behind the scenes, it's like, all right, well, no matter which path you take, this is going to happen kind of a thing, <laughs> especially, especially playing in a VTT setup. Like, I've only got so many things I can do. The thing we were exploding in Freegoing Wendigo was the craziest. That's, yes, the dig site, yep. Um, one of them I had planned on and the other one I didn't, so that made that whole moment absolutely crazy for sure. That was before we we cranked up the Wendigo stats too, which, thank goodness, it wasn't that deadly. That would have been absolutely insane. But yeah, that was a fun moment. It's It is tricky to pull off those kind of cutscene style moments and I have done them before. I think you need to do them very sparingly. But they can be very, very effective for showing off these really cool moments. And thus far my players really haven't complained about them too much in terms of like, oh well I wish I could have done this or do that or interrupt this. You know, a lot of people if it's cool, like they'll kind of sit back and watch it unfold. Um similar I think to video game logic, you know, a lot of times you'll see, you know, your character being a badass and also the cutscene will happen, your character just standing there while things are happening. Like, you just kind of accept it. And that's <laughs> to make it a... Because you want to experience a good story. And that's uh, that's kind of what happens here a lot of times. And, you know, the Naz being able to rip out the bug out of Thimbleweed, even though she never exhibited that kind of power before or after, you know, whatever. Just made for a cool story and let me uh, create Revel's End like I wanted to. What I think is hard to share as a DM is the story experience is so deep because you know so much about the world and the characters altered, impacted, or changed the results. Guilty pleasures I take as one of the guilty pleasures I take as a DM. Yeah, I think I think that's a a trap a lot of DMs fall into when they really make their own world and they craft everything and and really want to share it with others. And I almost feel like. A lot of those DMs should probably just write like a novel <laughs> versus letting players like fuck around with their world because that's what's going to happen. Um, yeah, it get, and maybe that's why it's easier for me to create. Uh, so I'm not creating the big bones of everything, but I'm making, um, you know, I'm modifying everything within. So I don't feel like um, I need to uh, relay too much of that information. And I think it helps... Again, playing with more casual players, playing in a streaming setup. Um, we try to keep things pretty fast and loose and easy, and I don't try to get bogged down in a lot of proper names and nouns. Now, I am trying to do a little bit more of that in our Patreon D&D &D game. Those of you who are watching that game or playing in that game, 
might have picked up on the fact that that's a little bit of a more serious world. It has a lot more uh, story happening. Um, I think the story is actually uh, better written. It's not perfectly written, but it, I mean, it's, it's just really hard to write good uh, adventure content when you know that you have to also let your players, you know, fuck around a little bit <laughs> and be able to make choices and, and do their own thing. Um, but that one I'm, is a little bit more serious. I, I'm, I'm trying to see a little bit more of the world building into it. And I think uh, those players are interested in learning more about that world and reflecting in it. Uh, here, um, you know, maybe not as much, I feel like. It's, it's maybe more of a Guardians of the Galaxy uh, setup where, you know, the world may be crazy, but the players are their own kind of crazy and they don't necessarily fit in with the world that they're in. And that's perfectly fine. Uh, you know, the information is there if they want to learn about it. The important thing is if the story is there and makes sense, if the characters are there and make sense, you don't really need all this big, difficult backstory. You just got to be able to write that story down in like two or three paragraphs and not have it be tied into the grand, you know, and especially what's nice is this one really boiled down to um, there was a discovery of Shardlin in this region. And, it, and what is Shardlin? We're not sure yet. Um, and then a wizard was here, Baelish, Gant, Gaunt, and uh, found out that the Shardlin was, the, the, the source of it was somewhere in the glacier. And But he got arrested and thrown in jail before he could figure it out. So his girlfriend went back, got this artifact from the Arcane Brotherhood, uh, which is where they were from, uh, connected it to this dig site apparatus, you know, yada, 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 and then discovered that, oh shit, there's a whole city under the ice, this ancient city, and it was made out of the Shardlin, that's why it's blinking out, and then it, by doing that, she restarted this mythalar that was the nuclear reactor, and it, you know, blew her body away, and uh, and then caused Arl, the goddess, to suddenly be alerted, like the Eye of Sauron, that the fucking ring is out there, and then shut down uh, the entire daylight as she was searching for the wizards. And that was something I had seen from the very beginning, as she's searching for these wizards and trying to figure out what's going on, because she's kind of in panic mode. And then the players show up, and they just do a whole bunch of shit in Icewind Dale, and uh, the, the Dwerger, the whole Dwerger plot is great, but it's basically just a, a, they're just opportunists. They're like, oh, well, the Eternal Knight's here. You know, we hate the daylights. So let's just come up and conquer Icewind Dale. So that was just a great, like, tier one plot the players had to deal with. And so the main quest didn't even really start. I mean, if we go back and look at um, completed quests, what is it? Yeah, remember the Frostbane? Look at that. Session 34 is the first time they actually got the main quest. That was something we hadn't played around with, I think, yet. Picture back in Tomb Annihilation, where they got the main quest way back in Session 1, where they're like, hey, the main quest is you gotta stop the Death Curse. Like, we know it's a thing, it's a problem, you gotta get out there, it's in the jungle somewhere. This time, they I wouldn't even, they weren't even sure that Aro was the problem behind all of this. They were just like, we're showing up in Icewind Dale for different reasons, and uh, we're helping out at different towns, and then, oh shit, we learn about the Dwerger plot at some point, we had to deal with the Dwerger, and then, oh shit, now we learn from uh, Valen, this person we saved from the Dwerger place, that uh, you know the actual main quest involves the Arcane Brotherhood and the fact that there's different wizards here and some kind of connection happens. So I try to piece together all those different pieces. So everything was there. It's like I had the Lego, the bin of Legos in front of me and just the instruction manual only had me you know, using them in very basic ways. And I just had to take those same pieces and just make them fit together and build one big awesome thing to connect it. Uh, and again, the only thing I really had to add to make my story work was that whole Shardle and Dig site had to happen so they could basically meet with uh, Nass and learn about the stuff that they could learn more organically versus just having Flynn fucking tell them everything, which was uh, just totally worthless. So, all right, folks, let's wrap it up with some final few questions. Uh, did you feel it was really helpful to have Katavix, the High Necromancer, guide the players a bit? I'm debating including that part of the Expanded Tower. Seems useful, though, as a player resource. I also was um, surprised slash impressed, Ranger Sierra, of of how useful Katavix ended up being. And I was worried that it might be too useful in that campaign because, obviously, yeah, having the, suddenly this ancient wizard you can talk to, um, you know, that knows everything seems very good. I will say it helped out that I believe that was the last tower they ended up doing in my campaign. So, um, you know, had they gotten that wizard like first thing right off the bat, that would have been a pain in the ass because A, he would have had to like comment on everything in there. It'd be like me designing a new NPC for the, you know, 
for a video game campaign where it's like, oh, or a party member where it's like they got to suddenly respond to everything and be involved in all these things. Um, but the fact that they didn't get him until the very end meant that he was basically only useful for the Spire. And I do think it was very useful to have him in the Spire because, and again, different player groups may be different, but I think mine appreciated having an NPC that could explain some things and me, the DM, could explain through the NPC, similar to how I did Valen for a few situations as well. Uh, be there and be able to talk about like, okay, here's how this works, here's how this works, versus having the players try to figure it out and stumble over themselves. And so I think it ended up working pretty well. It probably depends on your group, um, but I think it mainly worked because they got Katavik so relatively late in their Ether and exploration. That was kind of almost the final rec reward they got from the what is a fifth tower they did was that they got Katavik to come with them for uh, the Spire. And then, and then uh, Katavix could deal with Arl at the very end. Um, and I think, I don't even know if I had her. I don't think I even had, took up a, t- a turn. I think I just had her so where she used her ice stasis and then she never recharged it because I was like, uh, this ability is just going to throw the balance too far off. And then I don't think she used like her legendary actions for the first round or something. But it was more of like a cutscene thing. I had to deal with him. <laughs> Secret doing good cutscenes has to all take place in the time of one round. Yeah, you definitely don't want to do... Uh, too much and it, it's definitely it, it's a careful balance for sure yeah you can i think you can get away with some stuff but do too many actions or things and the players are gonna start grumbling about it and, and rightfully so i think right why don't the players or anyone else act 33 sessions level up so they could enter the big leagues yeah and i really liked the way that worked in the main quest too it's like you don't even know you know the main quest right away you're, you weren't sent here to do any of that well, some of some of them were but um the fact that they learned it organically uh, and it really made it feel like a more non-linear campaign, even though eventually we got to a linear point where once we entered um, Arl's abode, basically, when we, the, the the open world part ended when we got to chapter five, and then we were teleported outside of chapter six and went from chapter six right to chapter seven, you know, it was all very linear. Whereas the first, you know, first two chapters can be done all just different side quests. And then even chapter two, some of them I did before chapters three and four, which is Sunblight and Destruction's Light, and others I did after between uh, Destruction's Light, which is the Charlotte Dragon, and then going to Oral's Abode. So I, I did like the way the main quest uh, played out more organically and didn't get it at the very beginning. Great campaign. Looking forward to hearing the players' impressions. GG. I agree. All right. So I think that is going to wrap it up for this little bit of AMA. Uh, a very final crafting sequence. I just thought it was going to be fun to do one final stream. Uh, with all of you but the real party the real fun will happen on friday during our epilogue and recap session we'll be able to go over kind of what the players uh characters want to do which I'll, I'll just have them basically tell me what their player characters want to do and i will write some little responses for them if they would like um and then we'll do our big recap where we can go over everything that happened in the campaign and then we'll do a bunch of giveaways trivia it'll be a good time had by all so there will not be a crafting stream on thursday there will be a patreon D game but that will not be live streamed it will just be for uh, those of you that are playing uh and then i will be off for basically the next two weeks after that but i will talk more about that on uh friday so thank you all for joining me for this final crafting icewind dale if you enjoy the content as always please check out patreon.com slash rogue watson shouts to platinum patrons joe will thomas stan brandon genocider david eclectic role play role christopher brian william Corey, go at 1337 big nut john john chris scott gene eric dan tyler nathan camp crystal lake counselor big chef andrew and daryl and gold patrons, RBG Papercrafts, Pretty Boy, and Yuma, Marcus, Dead Lizard, Lion, Sam, Luffy's Buds, Jerome, Nathan, Fasica, Tortoise, Scott, Ruffus, Carolyn, and William. Thank you all very much for your support. I will see you for our epilogue and recap session on Friday.